As we conclude this series of messages, I want to take you back to the beginning. Let's imagine that you and I are forcibly removed from this community because Oregon has been militarily conquered. And we're taken away from everything that's familiar. We leave behind our homes and most of our possessions. And we live the rest of our lives in a foreign land. We're surrounded by people who speak a different language, whose cultures and traditions and values are probably very different than ours. People who most likely do not share our faith. And in this place, we're not slaves, but we live in exile. And there's little chance, little hope, we ever will go home. And as we imagine that scenario, we need to understand that that is what Daniel experienced when he was taken captive in Jerusalem and dragged away to live his life in the pagan city of Babylon. We've watched key moments in Daniel's life over the past several weeks. We've watched Daniel and three of his friends navigate the challenges of life in a strange place of exile. We've seen them hold on to their faith in a way that enabled them not just to survive, but thrive in that strange land. We've seen them hold on to their faith in a way that enabled the Babylonian people to see and experience the reality of God. And Daniel and his friends were not alone. There were Thousands of Jews who were forcibly removed to Babylon. And they, like Daniel, had to learn how to live by faith in a place of exile. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because the Jews hate Babylon. They hate the place and they hate the people. Everything in Babylon is unfamiliar and they feel isolated and discouraged and even abandoned by God. And to make matters worse, the Babylonian people mock them and belittle their faith. And in such a place, it would be so tempting, so tempting for the Jewish people to barricade themselves against that ungodly world. It would be tempting to think only of home and to pray for escape. It would be easy to make themselves miserable by continually looking backward and longing for the good old days. And that's not what God wants for His children. He wants them to have productive lives right where they are in Babylon. He wants them not just to tolerate their exile, but to even become content in that place of exile. And he even wants them to make a difference in their community as they live among the despised Babylonians. And to help them clearly see this, to help them accomplish that goal, God sends them a message through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is not in exile. He's been left behind in occupied Jerusalem along with some other undesirable people. Jeremiah is just, he's just an old prophet. So he's not useful to the Babylonians. And he's not really a threat to them. So they ignore him. God doesn't ignore him, though. God prompts Jeremiah to write a letter 
to the exiles, to let them know that they have not been abandoned. God wants his people to know that even in Babylon, they can have productive lives. They can be content. And if they trust him, they even can have a lasting impact upon the place where they are living. Jeremiah's letter to the exiles is preserved for us, and and there's so much that we can learn from it because we too live in the midst of a world that largely does not share our faith. And we are surrounded by people who at times may mock us and may belittle us for choosing to be men and women of faith. And it can be tempting at times for us to want to barricade ourselves against the world around us. We can be tempted to build deep friendships only with other believers and and to minimize our contact with people who are far from God. And if we're old enough, we can even long for the good old days when life seemed to be better. But that's not God's plan or his purpose. He wants us to be content here. He wants us to be content now. And as we find contentment here and now, he wants us to leave a lasting mark on this community. This community where we live. Jeremiah's letter explains exactly how we can do that. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. Jeremiah is writing and he says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Listen to this next part. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The first thing Jeremiah tells the people is that this season of exile in Babylon is not an accident. God tells them in verse 4, I'm the one who engineered this situation. In other words, God motivated King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to conquer Jerusalem and to take the people of God away to Babylon. Other parts of the Bible make it clear that God did this because of decades of Jewish disobedience. And in response to that behavior, God used an ungodly king to carry out his disciplinary purposes. And it wasn't the first time God had ever done such a thing. God using an ungodly leader to discipline his people. We need to let that fact soak into our brains if we want to truly understand our God. And God tells the Jewish people this fact so they won't blame the Babylonians for their situation. In this moment, the Babylonians were just instruments of God's will. So the Jews can't blame the Babylonians, and they also can't blame God because he simply was responding to their own misconduct. The Jews know they're in Babylon as a direct result of their own foolish choices. And so this time of exile is a season of punishment. And yet, 
It's so much more. In fact, it even can be a season of renewal if they listen to God. And so what does God say? He doesn't tell them here to wallow in guilt. He doesn't want them to moan and complain. He doesn't want them to live as transients, counting the days and the minutes until they go home. Instead, in verses 5 through 7, he offers some very direct advice. He says, make this place your home. Put down roots. Don't look back, look forward. And I suspect that's not what they wanted to hear. I think they would have preferred God to say, I know you're not happy in Babylon. Don't worry. It's only going to be for a short time. I'll get you back home very, very soon. But God doesn't say that. In fact, he makes it clear that most of these people never will go home. Otherwise, why settle down? They will live out their lives in Babylon. So God wants them to embrace this place of exile and make it their home. Build houses, raise family, make friends, recreate the rhythm of family life and community life in this strange new place. This is a time for them. Time for them to understand God in some new ways. A time to recommit themselves to God. A time to grow in faith and wisdom and understanding of God. And yet, at this same time, they can't only think about themselves, they also must think about their new neighbors. So God urges them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Babylon. The Jews are to pursue the welfare of the community and promote the welfare of the community and pray for the welfare of the community. Babylon is full of people that they instinctively hate. And God says, I want you to embrace this place. So as they get on with their lives, they must strive to be agents for positive change in the community around them. As they raise their crops and as they tend their herds and as they interact with Babylonians in the marketplace, they must seek the peace and prosperity of the entire community, not just their own community of faith. And when God talks about prosperity, he's talking about so much more than just merely making money. God is interested in the prosperity of contentment and civility and goodwill. He's interested in the prosperity of loving your neighbor as yourself. The prosperity of a community where peace reigns rather than strife. And I believe that this advice which God gives through Jeremiah to these exiles is not just for them alone. I believe this advice applies to all of God's people in every generation, in every place, wherever they might live. It's no accident that the Jews were in Babylon, and it's no accident that you and I are here right now in this place. And I believe God wants us to embrace this place. And as we go about our daily lives, as we, as we work and study and do errands, as we coach sports and tutor kids, as we do business in the marketplace, as we chat with our neighbors, 
we can seek the peace and prosperity of this community in which we live. And there are countless ways, big and small, that we can model this and live it out in our daily lives. We can also do this, as God says here, through our prayers. We take that very seriously. That's one of the reasons that Gardenway has joined with more than 40 other churches in this community to pray for our city in very specific way. Every day, there are believers in this community who are praying for 10 influential segments of our community. We're praying for the media, for government, for business and sports and education and churches and families and the arts firemen and policemen and healthcare. We're praying for God's peace and God's prosperity to permeate every one of these areas of our life together. And we're praying because God says, pray for the city. And we've been doing this now here in our city for two, about two years. And our prayers are making a difference. There are some people who work in the Eugene City Hall who say, you know, there's, there's kind of a new spirit around this place. There's kind of a new feeling. And, and we can't explain it. But there's this growing sense of peace and contentment. I don't think that's a coincidence. I believe that kind of thing happens when God's people pray. And as God says here in verse 7, when this takes place, everyone benefits. As our prayers slowly begin to reshape the community, I find a growing sense of contentment within myself. I have a greater sense of peace and assurance because I know that God is at work here in this place and that he is listening to and responding to the prayers of his people as we pray for this city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you live. That's what God wanted for the Jews in exile, and that's what he wants for us. And by the way, you can join in this prayer effort by becoming part of what we call our 24-7 prayer team. If you're interested and want to learn more, just jot 24-7 on your connection card, turn that in, and we'll get back to you. When we embrace the place that we live, when we settle down and live our lives according to God's purposes, when we pursue the peace and prosperity of our community, God can help us find contentment. We can find contentment even when we live in a community that is very far from God. That's the message that God is giving to his people, and yet there always will be contrary voices. Even among God's people, there are those who will not speak the truth and who will try and move the community of faith in a different direction. There will be false prophets and false teachers who want to give people a false sense of hope, and that's what God has Jeremiah address next. Look at verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I haven't sent them, declares the Lord. 
God wants his people in exile to know that there are some people they need to ignore. There are false prophets in their midst. One of those false prophets was a man named Hananiah. We read about him in Jeremiah 28 where he told the Jews, don't worry, the exile's going to end in about two years. And then people are going to start to come home. And therefore, you don't need to settle down. Now, that was a popular message, particularly since Hananiah claimed to be speaking on behalf of God, but he wasn't. He wasn't, but his message was appealing because he told the people what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. He was selling them a different vision of peace and prosperity based on a false and we need to see how God addresses this here in verse 9. He says that these false hopes are dreams you encourage them to have. In other words, false teachers exist because some of us are willing to listen to people who will pander to our own desires. We see this so clearly today in preachers and teachers who promote what's called the prosperity gospel. And they teach that if we just have enough faith, we all can be rich. And if we just have enough faith, we all can be healed from all of our illnesses and sicknesses. But this is a perversion of biblical prosperity, just as Hananiah's lies were a perversion of what God wanted the exiles to know. And God says, don't listen to such people. The Jewish people need to reject the false hopes offered by Hananiah. If they were to embrace what Hananiah says, they would be perpetually disappointed and never be content. So instead of bracing false hopes, God's people need to pray for wisdom and discernment so we can hear God's truth even when it's hard, so that we can accept God's truth even when it's a truth we don't want to hear, and then we can respond by living according to God's truth. And Jeremiah is writing God's truth. That's what these people need to know and hear and understand. And he articulates two simple yet powerful principles that can actually help them find contentment. They can embrace the place where they live and they can reject false teaching. Reject false hopes. Those are two critical steps on the path toward contentment. And yet both of those things must be built on a solid foundation and it's the foundation of trusting God's promises. We never will be content until we trust God's promises. That's what Jeremiah talks about next in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me. And come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find you and you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. For the Jewish people, reading this letter from Jeremiah, this part of the letter is where the rubber meets the road because now they learn that this season in Babylon is going to last 70 years. It's one thing to know that the exile may not end quickly. It's another thing to be given a specific timetable. And 70 years is a long time. It would be so easy to hear these words and cringe. To hear these words and turn inward. To hear these words and think only about yourself. And yet, once again, God makes the point that it's not just about them. Notice in verse 10, he doesn't say, I'm going to come and bring you home after you've completed 70 years of punishment. He says, I'm going to bring you home when 70 years have been completed for Babylon. And so this time of exile is intended to change the Jewish people, to deepen their devotion and trust in God, but it's also designed to change the Babylonians. If these people reject false hopes and truly embrace this place, not only can they experience contentment, but they can leave Babylon different than they found it. They can leave God's mark on the Babylonian people and the Babylonian culture. Daniel understood this. We've seen it in his life. We've seen Daniel make a difference for God. And he wasn't alone. I believe that there were hundreds of faithful Jewish exiles, men and women whose names we never will know, who also grasped God's purposes and trusted God's promises. They took this advice from God to heart, and they touched the people around them as they went about their daily lives. They modeled devotion to God, and they spoke about devotion to God while raising their families and visiting friends and shopping and interacting with their neighbors. They understood that this season in Babylon was a time for them. And it also was a time for the ungodly people around them. They were able to embrace this place because they understood God's plan and trusted in his promises. And as this passage makes clear, God had a very specific plan with a very specific promise. He had not abandoned them, and in his time, he would bring them home. It is a great and reassuring promise from God. And yet, as we read these words, we need to be careful because God is not talking in a general way about his plans for every believer. He is talking about his plans for these people, these Jews who live in exile in Babylon. So the specifics of this passage do not apply to us. And yet, there's a general principle here that does apply. Because in every generation, God wants his people to have hope. He wants us to have hope for the future. He wants us to experience contentment today, wherever we may live, and always recognize that a better future awaits. But most likely, it's not going to be in this life. The better future, the best future is in the life to come. And I believe God's promise to us is this. 
I've not abandoned you. And in my time, I will bring you home to me. And the way for us to find true contentment then is to, to grasp God's plan for our lives. And his plan, <clears throat> his plan for you, his plan for me is going to be very different than what it was for the Jews in Babylon. Like them, though, we can trust God's promises for the future. And with that hope, then we can serve him right where we are, right here, right now. We can embrace this place where we live because we're not here by accident. And as we embrace this place, I believe that we can experience a deep contentment And when God does take us home, we can leave this place better than we found it. I spent a lot of time pondering this passage throughout the week and reflecting on its meaning for my life. And it occurred to me that that in many ways, this letter kind of defines the ebb and flow of my life. Back in 1980, I was working for a company. I was still in industry at that time. And the company I was working for transferred me to Chicago. My wife Julie and I are native Southern Californians, so Chicago for us was a very strange place. It was very different. But we chose to embrace Chicago and make it our home. We settled down, we bought a house, we invested our lives in that community. We made friends. We loved connecting with our new neighbors and talking with them about the hope that people can have when you live a life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we became content. We fell in love with that place. And we didn't want to leave. We thought we'd be there for years. But you see, that was our plan. It wasn't God's plan. We'd been there just five years when Julie's father became ill and died. And we needed to come back to Southern California to care for her mom. And I understood the practical reason why we had to leave Chicago, but I was not happy about moving back to Southern California. I didn't want to be there. And I became convinced that we would be there five years at the most. That we would get Julie's mom settled and taken care of, and then we would move away and never, ever return. But that was a false hope. It was my plan not God's plan. And because I held on to that false hope, I was restless. I was not content. For those first few years, I kept looking for chances to move and opportunities to move and places to move and nothing materialized. And finally, I realized I couldn't be content until I let go of that false hope. And so I took my dreams and my hopes and my desires and put them on a shelf and I started listening more closely to God. And once I started listening, I realized that his plan for me in that season of life was vastly different than mine because that's when he led me out of the marketplace and into ministry. And my life and my priorities changed dramatically. Instead of leaving that community in five years, we stayed there for 27 years. But here's what's really interesting. During that time, I never felt completely at home there. I felt like I was living in exile. But we made it a home. We settled down. 
We created a rhythm of life. We raised our kids. We made amazing friendships with people that I deeply, deeply miss. We had a succession of different neighbors, many of them unbelievably far from God, and we loved getting to know them and spending time with them and sharing with them the hope that people can have when they choose to live as followers of Christ. And so even though I never felt at home, it became a home. And we became content as that community and those people left their mark on us. And as we left God's mark on them. So I've learned over the years that wherever God takes us, we just have to learn to trust his plan for us. And Julie and I certainly haven't done it perfectly. We've had to learn from a lot of mistakes we've made along the way. But we realize that God always has a plan. He had a specific plan for these Jews in exile. He had a very different plan for me. So what's his plan for you? What's God's plan for you here and now in this season of your life, here in this place? How does he want you to find contentment? And as part of that plan, how does he want you to seek the peace and prosperity of this community in which we live? God's promised that someday we're all going to leave and we're going to go and be home with him. While we're here, though, we can embrace this place. And we can find great contentment by leaving this place better than we found it. As we help people see and experience the goodness of God. And we can do that even when it feels like a place of exile.